0: Just before he set sail from Belfast to work as a crewman on the maiden voyage of the Titanic, Susie Miller's great-grandfather gave his sons a simple gift.
1: Just before he left, he gave both of his sons, my grandfather and his brother, two shiny new 1912 pennies. And he said, don't spend those until we're all together again as a family.
0: Coming up, there's stories and lore of plenty from Ireland. It includes insider advice to introduce you to an authentic slice or two of the Emerald Isle.
2: In my top three, I'd say would be our unique sports, Gaelic football, hurling, games that you're not going to see around the globe too much.
0: Plus, Canadian singer Alan Doyle clues us in on what gives his island home of Newfoundland a special character.
3: The traditions, the music, the food, and the accents that came from whatever part of the UK or, or Ireland that you might have come from, kind of state. There's a
0: strong Celtic welcome from the Maritimes to the mother country in the hour ahead. Come along, it's Travel with Rick Steves.
3: Come on, come
0: on. One, two, three. They say if you grew up in the fishing village of Petty Harbour, Newfoundland, chances are pretty good you can sing. Coming up, one of Canada's favourite singers, Alan Doyle, is our personal ambassador to his home province. He lets us in on how straddling the Atlantic between Canada and the old country seems to make Newfoundland the kind of place where any visitor is invited to feel right at home. Stay with us for Alan Doyle's Newfoundland in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. It's no surprise that Ireland holds a sentimental place in the hearts of so many of its cousins in the U.S. and Canada. There are actually seven times as many Americans with Irish ancestry as there are people living in Ireland today. Ireland's popularity as a tourist destination is booming again, but there's still millions who dream about seeing Ireland someday. To help first-timers and returning visitors prepare for a great time in Ireland, we're joined now by three Irish tour guides. Dara Herlihy comes from Dingle on the rugged west of Ireland. That's where his family runs a music shop where a jam session of traditional Irish musicians might break out at any time. Stephen McPhillamy owns a guest house there and hails from Derry in the north. And Susie Miller leads tours of her hometown of Belfast. They'll help you with your travel plans in just a bit at 877-333-7425. Susie, Stephen, Dara, welcome. Thank you, Rick. Pleasure. You know, I was just in Ireland last summer, and I swear I've never seen it so thriving and so popular.
2: Uh, What is going on with Ireland lately? Have you noticed it, Stephen? Absolutely. We've actually got more tourists now coming to Ireland than inhabitants. Last year we had 10 million people come to visit Ireland, which is a record.
0: And how many people living in Ireland?
2: There's 6 million of us living in Ireland. Oh my goodness.
0: And I think it's just, you feel the affluence. I remember Ireland used to be frankly, pretty dreary and
4: and depressing in the countryside. There's no jobs and people were kind of grumbly. Yeah, I think...
0: Have uh, you noticed in Dingle? You live in the West Coast. Yeah, after
4: the economic downturn in 2008, ever since uh, we had a couple of slow years, and in 2014, there seemed to be a very large pickup in Ireland and, and the wheels are really moving, so to speak, and Ireland is just booming at the moment. All of you
0: take groups around Ireland, and I was impressed not just by, oh, a great castle or a great museum, but the experiences... Susie, when you take a group around uh, the best of Ireland in a couple of weeks, what's one of the experiences that you notice that the travelers really uh, relate to and that really get excited about?
1: when they get to Belfast uh, they hear all about the industrial past of that city which is totally different from from everywhere else on the island. They won't have seen anything quite a, as, as industrial and the remnants of, of the money that was flowing into Belfast at the start of the 20th century and that manifests itself through a huge new visitor attraction that's in Belfast called Titanic Belfast and oh, yeah. it tells the story not only of Titanic but of the shipbuilding industry that was there and a lot of people come to Ireland and they don't even know that the Titanic was built in Belfast which is partly our fault because we didn't talk about it for years. Right. But now we've really grasped onto this, and uh, it's being in the place and seeing the outline of that huge big ship and being on site. I think is now very you've got special. A connection
0: with the Titanic in your family, don't you?
1: I do. Yes. I'll give you the short version of this. You know, I can okay. make this last half an hour sometimes. But basically, my great grandfather was on the Titanic. Uh, he was one of the crew. He was assistant deck engineer, heading to a new life here in the states. And uh, unfortunately lost his life uh, in the disaster. Just before he left, he gave both of his sons, my grandfather and his brother, two shiny new 1912 pennies. And he said, don't spend those until we're all together again as a family. Of course, that didn't happen. I still have those two pennies.
0: And and just recently, thankfully for all of us who are curious about the Titanic, this wonderful Titanic uh, exhibit in Belfast is is there to tell the story. But beyond the great sights, Stephen, what's what's something that is just an
2: intimate experience in Ireland that that you enjoy sharing with the travellers? Yeah, we have many cool experiences in Ireland that people won't enjoy in their own countries. I could give you a list of 10, but in my top three, I'd say would be our unique sports, Gaelic football, hurling, games that you're not going to see around the globe too much. Uh, We have great dancing, and I don't just mean river dance because that's very famous and anyone can go see river dance here and there, shows like that. But, you know, if you're driving around Ireland, you can stop off and go off and find an Irish dancing school and maybe have a lesson yourself or just watch young kids dancing, not in the pubs, but away in the community centres and the parish halls and different places like that. Also in Ireland, we have a great tradition of horse racing and people can stop off and watch a good race. They could go to maybe the Irish National Stud or a stud farm and... Not just see the horses being raced, but see them being produced as such, you know, with with loving care and affection by people who've, who've bred horses for centuries. I have had so many just impromptu, serendipitous encounters
0: with young people dancing in Ireland. I mean, I think part of the whole beauty of The End of the Troubles is kids learn to dance together. I was just in Belfast and the kids are just in the hotel lobby dancing for the visitors. Dara, you, you your family runs a music shop in Dingle and just celebrates the music. Dara, Stephen talked about sports and, yeah, we know soccer, but hurling and, and was it called Irish football? Gaelic, Gaelic, football. Gaelic yeah. football. If you want to enjoy
4: hurling as a tourist, uh, how would you best do that? To enjoy sports in Ireland, I mean, hurling in particular, it's, it's kind of regional, so it depends on what area you're in, but every Sunday we have uh, hurling games and uh, We tend to go to them. So there are hurling, that's a Sunday activity. It's a Sunday activity. Throughout the summer? It's a very family-orientated activity. It's all year round, but particularly high season is in the summer. And would these be, I mean, if you go to Croke Park in Dublin, it's going to be more uh, tricky to get a ticket, perhaps, or more expensive. But if you're just in a small town, are you likely to stumble onto a hurling match on Sunday? Yeah, in a small town, you'll more than likely stumble onto a hurling match. Um, it depends on the area in which you're in. Now, I'm from Dingle and County Kerry, and that's probably Gaelic football area. You know. Okay. Hurling, to me, I've been to a couple of hurling matches, and it is breathtaking. It's, this I, I it's always, the fastest game on the ground.
0: I, I always call it, it's like, because Americans don't really know hurling a lot. And I say, it's kind of like airborne hockey with
4: no no injury timeouts. It, 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 it's kind of like hockey, isn't it? You try to get the It certainly the is. They say it's the fastest game on the ground. It's a wooden stick and the little ball, there's a leather ball, it's called the Schlitter. It seems to me as a viewer there's almost no rules. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> it is brutal, but it's definitely not as brutal as uh, rugby. It's, that's probably more of a... What of do you enjoy sport, more? You know? Definitely rugby. Because
0: you're from the southwest and rugby
4: is a bigger deal. I am religion, from right? the yeah. southwest, yeah.
0: One way or another, when you're traveling on Ireland, you can check out a sporting event and I would think that's a great traveler's tip right there Stephen, one of the greatest gifts any Irishman has ever given me was you taking me to the
2: stadium in Dublin. In Dublin, that's right, yeah. And we learned a lot about enthusiastic sport fans. Yeah, that's true. And remember, the thing about Gaelic sports is you can only play for the team where you're from. So when two teams come together, it's also two regions or two villages or two parishes coming into war. Is that right? Because in America, it's just free market and it's just players will jump ship just for more money. But in Ireland, you have to play for the your hometown. Yeah, so you can't ever be traded. You know, so it's, there's an extra passion there. And that that's, I think, something that visitors would like to I, tune into. Because in the old, you know, the good old days of baseball, you had somebody who was career in his hometown. And in Ireland, you still have that kind of local magic. That's right. And the game will only last for 70 minutes. So it's it's not an all-day affair. You could go off and watch a game, and then still get for lunch and still go to dinner and still do everything else, do your museum stop or whatever else.
0: We're here to help you with your travel plans for Ireland right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guests are Dara Herlihy, who lives in Dingle on the wild southwest coast of Ireland, Susie Miller, who leads tours of her hometown, Belfast, and Stephen McPhillamy. He was raised in Derry in the north and opened a bed and breakfast in Dingle a few years ago. They're all professional tour guides who specialize in taking American visitors around Ireland. Stephen, I've heard of an experience you take people on that's called a slog in the bog. What's
2: that? Well, a good chunk of Ireland is peat bog, so it's just mushy, soggy, wet land. Not very good for growing anything. And so it's, we do cut the turf, though. We cut peat from it to burn in our fires. But it's very spongy, and often we'd stop at the bus there and let people out. And some of them just like to bounce up and down. It almost looks like a cult if you were driving past. And so see you got, you got 20 tourists like, jumping, jumping on a trampoline, and it's all just turf. Yeah, it's kind of a, a unique experience for them. But also there's great plant life there if you're interested in flowers and fauna and little frogs and people. It's just something unusual.
1: So don't wear your best shoes. On don't the wear your best shoes <laughs> but Susie. right
0: there, you're talking peat, and peat is very important to the the heritage of Ireland. Susie, what does peat mean to an Irish person?
1: Peat or turf, as we tend to call it, turf, is is yeah. what you would burn on an open fire within a, a small house in, in years gone by. But it's kind of made a resurgence. People like to use it as a secondary form of heat now, so they'll have it going on the hearth. And part of the reason for it is that it has this lovely smell. It's sort of ambience, really. It, it really is. Because yes, you go to uh-huh. a peat
0: fire, I'd love. Love to have a peat fire right here in in my home. I, I don't know if we can get peat in in Seattle, but I just love that you can actually. Still enjoy peat as you just in your daily life in Ireland. Then?
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, I mean, you can get the more industrial forms of it, but you can just buy it by the roadside as well as if it's been cut and dried right there.
0: Cut and dried. I I love this sort of romantic notion that a, they say a good man can cut enough peat in one day to keep a family warm through the winter. I mean, people used to go out and just work hard cutting peat in order to stay warm.
4: Yeah, I still burn peat at home, even and uh, yeah. in the bar as well. I love to burn peat. It gives a lovely centre around the place. Do
0: you buy it in a plastic
4: sack at the I grocery do, store, I, uh, or do you, do you I, actually go? Actually cut a friend who Delivers it to me, and he gets it from all over the country, and it okay. comes in very large bags. It's about four euro for a bag of it, and uh-huh. uh, we dry it out for about six months. And if if you were looking at it as a I don't know scientist or chemist or whatever, is it sort of future coal? Is exactly. The they say that if it was left on the ground for X amount more years, that it would turn into coal eventually.
0: So you can cut it now, dry it out,
4: and burn it. Exactly, and we don't use just peat. I might tend to use it with wood and with coal. I find the combined fuels give a much better heat in the fire.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Irish experiences. Susie, one experience I had that I'll never forget is falconry. I've heard about falconry all over Europe, and I just actually got to follow... Uh, what, what would you call the guy who's the the falconry guy?
1: I guess he's the falconer. The falconer. <laughs> yeah, I guess that would be it.
0: Absolutely. Now, now, what's the story of falconry, and how can we experience that in Ireland?
1: Uh, the falconry uh, that you can experience in Ireland, it's a very natural activity. This is something that was developed over centuries And the handler will give everyone a go to actually handle this this bird, have it on their arm, launch it into the air, and then have it come back to you and land very, very gently on your arm. But
0: this goes back centuries. And and what was the original purpose? It's not just, oh, I've got a hawk that can go out and come back, but it was actually...
1: Yes, this was a hunting thing. You know, this was an actual way of, of hunting. Now it's actually been developed for a much more 21st century use. They they use these birds to keep runways clear at airports to, to scatter the birds which can so get... So
0: they're trained to keep the birds away from Some,
1: yes. A, a small percentage are. So it's found a new use. It was
0: mesmerizing to walk through a forest with a falconer and to see that hawk leave your carefully uh, protected arm with this big mitten and fly out into the woods, and then maybe come back with a squirrel or something like that. It's like fishing, but with a bird.
1: They like to bring you a few surprises, that's true, yes. And you you have no idea sometimes where it's gone. It's disappeared into these huge big fir trees, and all you can hear is this jingle of the little bell that's around its its neck, and then suddenly it will swoop down very, very casually and land back on your arm. It's magical.
0: I could just imagine in some manor house 800
2: years ago, the, the teenage son would go out with the hawk and come back with dinner. These days, modern visitors can experience the hawk walks in many places in Ireland. There's not just Ashford Not Castle. just Ashford Castle, Dromoland Castle. And there's probably, I would guess, 10 or 20 locations where you can do it. So you can
0: just look that up before your trip and see if you can yes. check out some falconry. And, and they division. say it's falconry, but it's actually with a hawk.
4: Yeah. It is. They're, they're, exactly. It's a Peruvian Harris hawk that you actually use. And they are only about four pounds in weight, so they're ex- extremely light and they're extremely agile. And falcons themselves have been broken records of up to 247 miles per hour was approved Harris Hawks to be about 100 miles slower. Uh, It's an amazing experience. We'll check in on the phones
0: in a moment at 877-333-7425 as our Irish tour guides, Stephen McPhillamy, Dara Herlihy, and Susie Miller help you get ready to enjoy Ireland like you belong there. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The lead singer from the Canadian folk rock band Great Big C has been busy lately putting out his third solo album, his second memoir about growing up in Newfoundland, and playing roles on popular TV dramas. Alan Doyle joins us in a bit on Travel with Rick Steves for a look at what makes his home in Newfoundland feel really inviting. Right now, tour guides Stephen McPhillamy, Dara Herlihy, and Susie Miller are here to take your calls at 877-333-RICK with tips to help you experience the best Ireland has to offer. Stephen, one of the great experiences in Ireland is to enjoy the beer, and when you order a beer in Ireland, in most of the Ireland you just get a Guinness, and there's more to
2: a Guinness than just pouring it. Tell us a little bit about how to draw a Guinness. Well, you see, it takes about three minutes for a Guinness to be poured properly. The angle's important. You'll hold it at a 45-degree angle. You'll pour it, say, two-thirds of the way, but then you have to let it settle. Often. In my little bar, I'd put the pint of Guinness up and it would only be two-thirds full and guests come and take it away and they don't have the, they're shy, they don't want to say, God, you, you haven't finished the rest of the Guinness. I'm like, don't touch it, it's not finished yet, you it." So and you never want to rush a Guinness. Yeah, you have to wait until it turns black and then you, then you finish it off by pushing the tap forward because you pull back the tap to start, that'll give it gas and then when you're finishing off, you push it forward, there's no gas but you have to let it settle. And then when you have a creamy white head and this perfect black body on it, then it's just ready to go and- be devoured. Now, Derry, you
0: actually run uh, a pub in Dingle, and I understand uh, Guinness is a stout, right? And yeah. in,
4: in much of Ireland, when you say you want a beer, you'll get a Guinness. That's correct. But in some of Ireland, you'll get a Murphy's, won't you? Yeah, it depends on what part of Ireland you're in, but Murphy's is um, predominantly um, used in Cork, so it's really territorial, to Cork itself, and you wouldn't order a Murphy's anywhere else in Ireland, only Guinness. And the reason being is if you're down in Dingle and if somebody's got Murphy's on draft, you can be sure it's not selling. Therefore, you'll be drinking sort of a beer that's not a true representation of its flavor ah. like you'd get in Cork or so other you turnover, So you want fast turnover because exactly. you get the better quality. Yeah, keep your lines clean and high volume. That's the key to, to a good pint.
0: That's <laughs> so. one more reason to go with the local specialty because yeah, exactly. it's going to be a fresher beer. Yeah, you know all about it the following day. This <laughs> so. is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Ireland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Vicki's calling in from Tonganoxie in Kansas. Vicki, thanks for your call.
5: Thanks for having me. I had a question. I'll be going to Ireland with my husband and my adult daughter for the first time. And I was wondering if I would be able to use my credit card like I do in the States, or do I need to get more euro and have them on hand?
4: Uh, Dara, what's the story with credit cards for American travellers in Ireland? Your your credit card is widely acceptable throughout all of Ireland. Something to be aware of is that when you go to small little towns like Dingle or you or some parts of southern Galway so on and so forth credit card isn't really accepted in bars so you can withdraw cash from any ATM machine. You can check with your card provider but generally there's no charge for using your ATM machine in Ireland. And of course let your bank
2: know that you're coming to Ireland because otherwise they might put a block. They might think that the Irish leprechauns have taken your card. and <laughs> okay. it's been stolen so make sure, that, make sure they know that you're in Ireland or they'll block it and you'll be stuck with no money for a few days. Vicki, where are you planning on traveling in Ireland?
5: Well, first we're going to go to Dublin and then we're going to actually stay in an Airbnb that's a castle close to theirs and then on to Cork then on to Galway and then back to Dublin. Very
0: Sounds nice. like you've got a good plan.
5: Yeah, I hope so. i are right. really looking forward to it.
0: Have fun on your trip.
5: Okay, thanks so much.
0: Thanks for your call. Scott's calling from Reno in Nevada.
5: Thanks so much for taking my call, Rick. Yeah. Um, my wife and I have traveled to Ireland and are slightly younger and more
2: carefree days, but we're looking to take our children for their first trip to Ireland. Our
5: children are currently ages 6 and 8, and uh, we're looking probably this fall to take them on that week-long trip. And I'd love some ideas and recommendations for just some can't-miss sights or experiences for kids that age.
0: Good question. What do you think, Susie?
5: Do you know
1: where I would start you off right away is uh, a museum that's opened recently down in Dublin. And when I say museum, you think, oh, no, kids hate museums. But this one is really interactive and great. It's called Epic Ireland, and it tells the story of how Ireland has spread out across the world and what Ireland has done for you. It's done in a really imaginative way. It's colourful. It's interactive. And I think your kids would really enjoy it. And it'll give them the, the basis for knowing what Ireland is all about.
0: And then right across the street, tied up on the, on the harbour side, is the famine ship.
1: Indeed, so it's called the Jeannie Johnson. It's a replica of a famine ship, a tall ship, which would have taken immigrants across to places like Canada and America in the 19th century. And you can climb all over that and get the feeling of what it would have been like on board. So, yeah, that's a good one, too, to knock off.
2: But you're forgetting the number one museum in Dublin. The National Leprechaun Museum. (laughs) What is that? It is what it says on the tin. It's the National Leprechaun Museum. I think it's number one on TripAdvisor, would you believe? And I actually haven't been into it, but lots of people do, and it gets good reviews. And I think they have something like giant furniture where you go in and you get photographs and you pretend you're a leprechaun. Thanks for your call, Scott.
5: Thank
0: you so much. That sounds fantastic. Have fun with your kids. And by the way, you can take kids into pubs
4: yeah absolutely the law states that kids are not supposed to be in the bar after 9pm which would apply in Dublin but Dublin only once you're only. in any rural area children are more than welcome once they're supervised because when our kids
0: were little we took them into the pubs all the time and it just was the neighborhood was gathered it was multi-generational great kids live kids music it's a real cultural experience and, uh, yeah. yeah this is Travel with Rick Steves we're talking Ireland and our phone number is 877 Barbara's calling from Mill Valley in California hi Barbara Hi, how are you? Great. Where are you dreaming of going?
5: Oh, well, I was curious about... I just saw the Star
1: Wars film, and I know that some of it was filmed on location in Ireland, and particularly on an island off the coast called Skellig Michael. I wonder if it's possible to visit that island.
2: I think you can actually see that from your B&B in Dingle, yeah, you can you? Yeah? can, definitely. And it's, uh, it is very possible to see it. You need to check, though, because I th- I hear that it's booked up many, many months in advance. Maybe even because a, of this year in the whole movie yeah. thing, huh? Uh, there's a limited amount of boats that are licensed to go out there. You just go online, Google it. You'll find w- different websites, different companies offering trips there. It's a pretty arduous journey, just to be warned. If you do get a sailing slot... It can be tough going out there. It's a tough climb. You have to be careful as well. It's run by the OPW, which is
4: the Office of Public Works. There will be rangers there and guides Mm. to help you. And the Star Wars that was released in December past, that was actually filmed on the Dingle Peninsula over on the Slayhead Drive on Sibylhead.
0: And you can look out and you see this uh, Skellig Michael, which is... It's a desolate rock, and it what feels like in the middle of the ocean. It's as far as a monk could get away from civilization. If you were a monk in that part of Europe and you wanted to go into the desert, because monks wanted to be, you know, a hermit monk, there's no desert, but you could go out into the ocean and and camp out on this rock and and eat pigeon droppings or whatever they ate I don't know mussels and uh, and just live a very austere life and in between t- Viking attacks <laughs> in between Viking attacks in a long dark winter in a land where the Romans said I don't even want to bother with that let's just call it winter <laughs> land of and, and today you can see the, the medieval stone huts of these monks can't you when you go
2: there? I think if you can get out there you definitely should. it should be A must-see activity, but it's a difficult one to get to, just to be aware. And if you're looking for that same sort of vintage uh, monks' huts and desolation, you can find a lot of beautiful ancient sites in uh, Dingle Peninsula. Yeah, and the Star Wars people filmed in Skellig Michael... Uh, two movies ago and then there was a few complaints because it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site you see and also it's a Puffin Sanctuary so Mm -hmm. with their most recent Star Wars movie they filmed it on the Dingle Peninsula and pretended it was Skellig Michael. Ah, is that right? Yeah, they rebuilt Skellig Michael on the Dingle Peninsula temporarily for the movie. Hey, Barbara, that's a fascinating opportunity to go one
0: step beyond when you get to the far southwest <laughs> of Ireland. Have a good time. Thank you. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we've imported Irish tour guides, Susie Miller, Stephen McPhillamy, and Dara Herlihy, to take your calls at 877 333 7425 and help you plan a great trip to Ireland. Betsy's calling from Richmond, in Maine. Hi, Betsy.
5: Hello, thank you for taking my call. I'll be visiting you in early spring, and in New England, March is still a winter month, but I was wondering in early spring like March, what is the weather like in Dublin? I'll be there for a week.
4: There's no real set forum with the weather in Ireland, Betty. You know, March and generally the temperatures start to rise a little bit. The one advice I would give you is to bring some light rain gear and um, it could be really beautiful and mild. It could be like a, a summer's day. There's no real set season in I Ireland. I think you should expect
0: it to be miserable, windy
4: and rainy. <laughs> expect the worst and uh, <laughs> you won't be disappointed.
0: Okay. I was just there in July and it was on certain days miserable and windy and rainy but you know, we kept at it. Just face the weather, have good clothing and, and make it happen. I was, uh, Susie, you from the north of Ireland it was a brutal day and we were at Giant's Causeway I feel your pain <laughs> <laughs> you've grown up in that and we went out and we hiked it and we had our raincoats on and it was a great a great afternoon
1: you can't be deterred you just got to get on with it you know in March it could still be snowing or it could be in the 60s you just don't know so be prepared for everything
0: well, of course famously they say there's no bad weather just inappropriate clothing <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're going to be in Dublin then and what what sites are you looking forward to seeing in Dublin?
5: I like to look at libraries, the Trinity College Library, and I have found out about the Chester Beattie oh, Library. Oh, I was just
0: in the Chester Beattie Library, and it is one of the most beautiful collections of precious manuscripts. This guy, do you guys know the Chester Beattie Library? Yes, absolutely. Stephen, what's, what's your experience there?
2: Well, you just
0: walk there behind the castle, don't you?
2: So it's just very close to everything else you're gonna see. It's a very funky exhibition. It's free to get into and it's got one of the greatest collections of art that this I presume he was a billionaire Mm -hmm. bequeathed to the Irish people, gave it to us as a gift.
0: Beautiful Persian art and so on. Islamic uh, art, yeah. Yeah.
2: I think he had a team of twenty collectors going around the world gathering precious pieces. And a great little cafeteria there. Yeah. The Silk Road Cafe. Stop by for lunch. Have a good time, Betsy. Thanks for your call.
0: Ed's calling in from Saugus in California. What are your plans for Irish travel?
5: Well, I was thinking I have a 16-year-old son. I told him if he made straight A's last semester that I would take him to Ireland. And a short three- or four-day trip on his spring break would be the first week of April... And I wanted to see what your expert travel guides would say about which cities to visit. Would it be Dublin or Galway or Cork? I've been to all, I've been all over the whole country. I just, I wanted to see what the experts would say, where to take a 16 year old and what to see.
0: And you've got three days.
5: It's four days, three nights.
2: Okay, so you've got three whole days to see. You've you got to be really careful not to do too much. Uh, if it was me, I would do Dublin and Belfast and maybe Galway, but you could do that in a day trip from Dublin. That would be pretty brutal. Okay. I think Belfast is so thriving and
0: surprising because it's sort of one of these industrial cities that are coming back into its own, and it celebrates the end of the Troubles, really, and, and Dublin is is just the capital of the culture. But Ireland is also a rural and a small-town island, so you might want to... You need to get a couple more days. Yeah, you know, Susie, <laughs> <what's it laughs> yeah. yeah. what, what would you recommend?
1: You can certainly hit the north pretty easily if you use Dublin as your base by using the train system. Train system's really easy, efficient and...
0: Because there's that new express train from Dublin to Belfast. Dublin
1: to Belfast takes about two hours just and two hours. runs from about half seven in the morning so you could take the first one up and the last one back you and have, have a great day you in You have Belfast. ten hours in Belfast and Absolutely, do Absolutely, and loads to do. What's he into, though? What 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 are, what are his interests?
5: Well, it's funny you say that. He is actually a, a train aficionado, and I was looking at getting the three- or the four-day Irish Rail Pass and possibly taking a, you know, a day trip either to Belfast or to Cork or to Galway. And part of the experience, of course, is just riding on the train and seeing the, the lovely countryside go by and seeing the sights that way.
4: I'd say with a 16-year-old as well, I'd recommend Galway because the sights are really, really beautiful if you're getting the train from Dublin. And also something to keep in mind if you're staying in Dublin is Dublin is really thr- driving at the moment, so accommodation is very expensive and can be a little bit difficult to get, mm. whereas Galway it's a student city, so it's very vibrant, very much alive. Mm-hmm. It's only got 80,000 people, so it's very small as far as the cities go. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I hope nobody's from Cork, but I would say of those four cities, Cork is a distant last place. I'd agree. I think so, too. (laughs) Only with the time frame. That's all.
0: And I would say, with three days, you're going to run yourself ragged to try to do three cities. So I would spend two days in Dublin and even make a, a day trip up to Belfast. But I would also remind you that the Irish guides on the street, there's so many of them. Everywhere you look, you can take guided walks. And the gift of gab is so apparent in Dublin I love the musical pub crawl and the literary pub crawl and it's a chance just to hang out with an Irish guide and enjoy that, that wonderful
2: art of conversation. Good evening everybody! Good. Good evening! You're very very welcome to the Dublin literary pub crawl. Stephen, <laughs> one important thing if he is into trains the train journey from Belfast to my hometown of Derry mm. was described by Michael Palin as one of the top 10 most beautiful train journeys in the world. And it really wow. it really is. That's quite a statement it from my opinion. It goes right across the mm. the beaches. It goes through lovely tunnels in the cliffs. Some of the beaches there is where Game of Thrones was filmed. You know, Ed, your son is worth more time in Ireland. Call in call in well. <laughs> Tell the teacher
0: this is a better education. Stay for six days.
5: <laughs> you know, I, I would like to do that. He has some other things he has to do. Okay. Uh, and, you know, uh, one thing day. I don't want him to know is all that right. the trains, I'm sure, have Wi-Fi, so I'm going to try to tell him that there's no Wi-Fi No in the Wi-Fi, all phone right. His no good. <laughs> His iPad is no good. I want to make sure he's not on the electronic devices while we're there.
0: Good man. Hey, good parenting, Ed. Thanks for your call, and, and have a great trip.
5: And thank you so much for your uh, tips.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we've been talking with three friends and tour guides, Dara Herlihy, Susie Miller, and Stephen McPhillamy. And I'd like to close out just with your favorite little intimate thing about... Ireland I mean, for me, I forget all about soda bread until I get to Ireland, and then I have this amazing soda bread love that is rekindled every time I get to the west of Ireland. What is it about the the soda bread first of
2: all, who, who can tell me what the magic of the soda bread is in Ireland? Well, I think it could be something to do with our water. it's a really it's a good quality water that we're drinking in Ireland, and when I bring my guests into the kitchen and let them actually participate in making bread. Just their eyes light up. I think Americans love bread in general, but it's a different style of, of baking in, in our Am part I of the world. Am I
0: the right thing? Soda bread?
4: Yeah, it's Irish. traditional yeah. Irish soda bread. And it's and we, just your and basic it, hearty bread. It is, and it's unsweetened, so there's no sugar mm-hmm. inside in it. You know, I always wonderful. remember growing up my mother's... So, <laughs> so that's my little bread. intimate oh. detail. I'll let you, all three of you just share yours. Dara, what is your favourite? Oh, mine has to be a pint of Guinness. A pint of Guinness. No doubt about it. And don't rush <laughs> it. Absolutely not. Never <laughs> rush a Guinness. And,
0: and you know, part of a pint
4: of Guinness is, I think, the atmosphere that surrounds you How do you choose a good pub? Look for a pub with good music. That's my recommendation. Another tip is if a pub does food and music, one is usually lacking. Susie, what's your favorite tip?
1: For me, first-timers should really make an effort to get to know the locals. Just sit down and talk to people. We're a friendly bunch and we're so funny. We talk about crack, you know, crack meaning the fun, the, the conversation, the so laughter. So if, if
0: you see good crack on the sign of a pub, they're not selling anything that's illegal. Correct. This is just bragging about the conversation.
1: Indeed, yes. Uh-huh. And that's how you get to the heart of the country, I think, is experiencing our sense of humour, which is unique. Well, how are you going to meet an Irish person? Just go sit down beside them at the bar. It's as easy as that or in a restaurant or any public place. We're happy to talk to you. Ask them what time it is. Ask them what the weather's going to be like tomorrow and immediately you're in a conversation. There you go.
2: Stephen? My favourite little thing about Ireland is the National Tidy Towns competition. It's this cutthroat competition that happens every year and, and every town has to enter. It doesn't matter if you want to or not. You're entered and the the results are then published in the national media in the newspapers. So every town wants to compete with the neighbouring town to be better and tidier and you have to you get points for Cleanliness, obviously, and no litter, colour. You have to have loads of flowers. Ireland used to be grey and drab until this competition came in in the 1950s, and now everybody thinks Ireland is synonymous with purple buildings and green buildings and bright yellow. And it's all in the last 50 years. It's really cool. I was driving through one of the national win- winners recently, one of the little villages. And as I was driving through, my, my gas tank on the car was sort of burst open a bit. And I left a big trail of gasoline down the middle, or petrol, as we say, down the middle of the street. They came charging after me. They're like, what have you done to our town? You're messing it up. You're messing it up. Don't they have a sign at the beginning of the town that says a national winner or some kind of a winner? If they, if they have one, that's their biggest badge of honor is to put that big sign out saying national winner of Tidy Towns. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we got Tidy Towns.
0: We've got... The crack. The crack and beginners. The there we and go. And the <laughs> Dara, Susie, and Stephen, thanks so much for helping us better understand the Emerald Isle. Thank you. are very welcome.
4: When the sun goes down, or in town, the colors last for hours
5: old. The lights come on, the night's a song, and the streets all turn to gold. A gentle mist called heaven's kiss, like tear drops off an angel's
4: wing. And don't you know you'll cleanse your soul with a walk in the iris?
0: Stephen's back with us in a couple of weeks along with singer Kathy Ryan to tell us about St. Patrick and a few of Ireland's other favorite saints on our Easter edition of Travel with Rick Steves. You can sure feel a strong tug toward Ireland in the small fishing village in Newfoundland where singer Alan Doyle grew up. He tells us how his Irish ancestry helped the Doyles up on Skinner's Hill get a reputation as pretty good musicians around his hometown it seems like Newfoundland can always give you something to sing about. We'll find out why next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Parlaan o' maeldaanig is annam dum, agus beam ag taas le Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Barry from Cork on the south coast of Ireland, and that was the Gaelic Irish for I Travel with Rick Steves. Parlaan o' maeldaanig is annam dum, agus beam ag Le Rick Steves. Whether you're raised there or only a visitor, the Canadian province of Newfoundland is one of those special places that promises to have a lasting influence. We're joined now on Travel with Rick Steves by one of Newfoundland's favorite sons, Alan Doyle. He's a singer and actor best known outside Canada for his work as the lead singer of the band Great Big Sea. Alan's written two memoirs about growing up in Newfoundland. Where I Belong is a Canadian bestseller, and his latest book is A Newfoundlander in Canada. Always going somewhere, always coming home.
3: Alan Doyle, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. and Cheers from Newfoundland to all your listeners.
0: Yeah, and uh, first of all, we got to get the pronunciation right. You just said it, Newfoundland.
3: You did it great. <laughs> I think you did a great job. But, You know, the way I always remind people is, understand Newfoundland. They kind of rhyme, and like understander, Newfoundlander. And that's the way. That's the most common way to do it around here. And but you did a great job. Way to go. Understand Newfoundland. Good Newfoundland. There you go.
0: Well, you're you're distinct. I I understand Newfoundland as uh, thirty minutes off from a time zone from the rest we of do, the east coast.
3: We do. We're one of the few places in the world that have our own time zone. Yeah. And so we're 30 minutes ahead of Atlantic Canada. So that puts us 90 minutes ahead of Toronto, New York, <laughs> and everything in the Eastern time zone. So I was, you know, where I was at least in a half an hour or 90 minutes ahead of everybody else. Somebody told me that was just
0: because uh, Newfoundland wanted not to be forgotten by the rest of Canada. So every time they say 6 <laughs> o'clock tonight, 6.30 in Newfoundland or something like that. Yeah.
3: <laughs> One of the things that I talk about in the, that book you mentioned called The Newfoundlander in Canada, in the most recent book, is about discovering for myself as an islander how far out in the ocean Newfoundland is. You yeah. know, because if you grow up like on an island, you spend your young life trying to convince yourself and everybody else that it's not that far away from everything. Right. You know, until you start traveling and you go, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> it actually is quite a ways from everything. And, and it, it's cut off in more than geographic terms. I mean,
0: when your grandfather was a kid, a Canadian was somebody who lived in the country, the next country over, right?
3: That's right. Well, in the weird twist of history and politics for me, me and my father, were born in the exact same little fishing town called Petty Harbor. But me and my father were born in different countries. And he was born a Canadian, right? I'm a first-generation Canadian. My father was almost 10 years old when Newfoundland voted to join Canada, right? And, of course, my grandfather would have been, you know, an adult at that point and would have voted in that vote to give away Newfoundland's independence or not. And I don't need to wonder how he voted because yeah. he told me a lot. <laughs> well, And it wasn't to join another country. It was to keep our own, you know. But, of course, I was born in Canada, right? So in the oddest twist of fate, I, you know, I'm a first-generation Canadian. And I, I always joke when I'm touring and playing music in the United States. You know, we're kind of like the most recently joined island province. We're basically, we're Canada's version of Hawaii. <laughs>
0: Newfoundland joined in 1949,
3: right? That's right. Yeah. And, and it was a close vote. 51-49, yeah. Yeah. And a much kind of one of those twists of history, a much much controversial vote that, you know, recounts were demanded that were never had and all that kind of stuff. All lending itself to the the sort of Republican conspiracy theorists of of my, you know, my grandfather's generation. What are
0: some ways that Newfoundlanders are unique to Newfoundland uh, as opposed to the rest of Canada?
3: I think the first things I would talk about is in is in music and art and culture and and the, the things that people, the humanity of it all. The settlement patterns here in Newfoundland, of course, primarily came from Southern England and Southern Ireland, you know, other than the uh, First Nations and indigenous people. But 550 odd years ago, Southern Irish and Southern English fishermen started coming over here in the summertime and started fishing the Mm. cod stocks. And then slowly but surely, they started staying through the winter, which must have sounded crazy at the time, you know, in the 1600s or whatever to say we're going to stay in Newfoundland for the winter. And that's how the coasts of Newfoundland became populated. So the the traditions, the music, the food, and the accents that came from whatever part of the UK or, or Ireland that you might have come from kind of stayed, right? And so they became fixed in time. So there are accents in Newfoundland that are like parts of Suttered Island were, you know, in the 1600s. And those accents probably don't even exist over there anymore. But so it was isolated. And up until very, very recently... You know, Newfoundland, like my parents grew up in, you know, the 1950s and 60s in Newfoundland with really only exposure to the tiniest little bit of Canada or to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Most of the experience and and stuff was still came from the other way.
0: So it was Euro- European-facing. Yeah.
3: And, of course, most of our visitors then were people who were on ships coming back and forth, like the Portuguese white huh. fleet used to be out in front of my little fishing town every summer. Yeah. We used to sell codfish over there. And not, uh. You know, we used to sell it the other way, not this way. So very connected to Europe. <laughs> Whenever I go back to Ireland, I was called the mother country. The mother country. Wow. <laughs> you know, a fellow said something to me the other day, and I, and I never heard it before, because, you know, most of the Irish immigration into North America... Of course, people think of the mass immigration to New York and to Boston and Chicago, right? And those all happened within decades of each other, you know, after the famine and, and right. all that kind of stuff. Right. But, of course, the Irish immigration to Newfoundland was very trickled and happened long before any of that. And this guy had a term, and I had never heard it before, but he was an Irishman. He said, yeah, you guys are the swimming Irish. The swimming And I thought Irish. that was fantastic, and I, I'd never That's heard it before. Good. He was from the south of Ireland, yeah. and he said that's what they called people from Waterford and stuff called Newfoundlanders. The swimming, swimming Irish. Irish, and you call what them, a great name or, for a band, <laughs> or the Nitsy Pumpkin. Yeah, that's right, Nitsy Pumpkin. Yeah, what's the Nitsy Pumpkin? That's in your glossary in your book. Yeah, that's a unique one, man. That's very unique to. And again, I used it in that first book to demonstrate to people that there are there are places in Newfoundland. Of course, that are just kilometers away from another place in Newfoundland, but were never connected by road <laughs> and barely connected at all by the ocean. So they had things and terms and foods and dances and songs that lived exclusively in those communities. And that's one of the terms in my hometown, Petty Harbor, for a you know a red haired like I think in America or Ireland you might say like a ginger.
0: Yeah. Freckles.
3: You know, that term, like freckle face, like a red haired a that's pumpkin. a nitsy pumpkin. <laughs> It's the Canadian island closest to Ireland.
0: We're exploring Newfoundland right now on Travel with Rick Steves through the eyes and stories of one of its favorite native sons, Alan Doyle. He's joining us from the CBC Studios in St. John's. Alan was lead singer for the band Great Big Sea. Now, with three solo albums of his own, he's a leading figure in Canada's Celtic-flavored East Coast music scene. Alan was awarded the Order of Canada in 2017 for his contributions to the culture of Newfoundland. He describes how such a home base stays with you wherever you go in his autobiography called Where I Belong. His follow-up book is A Newfoundlander in Canada, Always Going Somewhere, Always Coming Home. His website is alandoyle.ca. Rick in Tucson's on the line with us at 877-333-7425. Rick, I hear you've been to Newfoundland.
5: My wife and I had a chance to drive around all of that marvelous island a couple of years ago, primarily because we wanted to get up and visit where our rallies first hit the New World, up at Leonza Meadows, at the very north of the island. Uh, But one of of the great stories we heard when we were there, which it had sort of been in the back of our memories from back in 9-11 days when all the airlines were forced to land outside the United States is Gander, which is in the middle of that island, hosted, right. I don't know, something like 40 superjets full of passengers, yeah. and the people took them in. And I wondered what's what's happened with that and how's that going?
3: Well, thanks for very much for coming to visit. First, it's always nice to have you. Yeah, so the, the most significant thing, of course, about the Gander's involvement in 9-11 is that it's been turned into, you know, it, it's literally the story of legends and 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 has been celebrated in song and story, so much so that arguably the most successful show running on Broadway currently right now is a show called Come From Away, nominated for Tonys, just got nominated for a Grammy. That is a show completely about Gander's open-door hospitality during, you know, the tragedies of 9-11 when Gander, for your listeners, would know probably right now I'm guessing the population of Gander to be between and 10,000 people and uh, would have swelled to probably double that after all the jets landed. The reason why all the jets landed, you see, is because it's got a great American history in Gander. That was a massive Air Force base in the 1950s and 60s. So they had the
0: infrastructure for landing planes.
3: Yeah, just... they had a the huge runway and so, you know, where normally there might be, you know, a couple of small planes at a time in Gander. Divert to Gander. There was thirty or forty massive <laughs> airlines that all had to be, and then of course they had to find accommodation for them, and they were all housed. and And people, you know, who were on those planes talk about how during one of the darkest times in the world, they were the people mm. that saw the most love and the most hospitality. And it's just one of those famous things about Newfoundland's history as a, mm-hmm. a welcoming people, and especially like a beacon in a storm, right? And and I think that is is part of our DNA through history because literally through history we had to be that you know we, mm. we're literally a rock in the middle of the ocean that we ended up you know hosting and helping ideally people washing ashore emergency landing Rick thanks for your call you're thanks, welcome. Rick. this is travel with Rick Steves I've been talking with
0: Alan Doyle his book is Where I Belong Small Town to Great Big Sea his second book his latest book is A Newfoundlander in Canada Always Going Somewhere Always Coming Home I read in your book about kitchen parties. That's kind of cool where people just hang out in the kitchen. What What are some insights that we might uh, use as travelers to carbonate the experience by making friends?
3: One of the great things about being a song fella, a singer, a songwriter or whatever from Newfoundland, is that it's one of the places that's recorded its history, not exclusively in song, but primarily in song. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, again, because a lot of the communities around the coast didn't have a library, they didn't have a newspaper, So they had, you know, they recorded their history in ways that they could remember. So often that was in stories and songs and recitations. And, you know, you combine that with the fact that these communities really had to be their own entertainment, right? If they wanted to have a dance on Friday, there was nobody rolling in on a bus, you know, to play for them. So they had to do it themselves. So in a lot of those communities, even as recently as a generation ago, you would go to a dance in one of those small towns and the music and the songs that you might hear. Would be probably really exclusive to that town, <laughs> you know, and that's amazing to think of. So, I mean, to, to make a long story short, I mean, one of the great ways I think that if you want to learn about Newfoundland and you don't want to read ten books, you can always just learn ten Newfoundland songs. Yeah, and you learn, you know, you learn a lot through them.
0: Alan, is there a, a pub? I mean, because we're talking about the Irish, uh, what the Newfoundlanders are, the swimming Irish. Yeah. Would you find? Uh, some of those swimmers were uh, like to, to sing in the pubs. Is there that kind of a, yeah. a beautiful vibe well, in the pubs?
3: Well, that's a great question because one of the things that makes Newfoundland, again, kind of different is that the city of St. John's, there really is only one true urban environment on the entire island, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. it's a big one. It's a big island. Mm-hmm. So St. John's, where I'm calling you from right now, I think to a a traveler like yourself would be akin to being in the south of Ireland in a, in a small city or in the south of England and then the rest of the province is dotted with fishing towns that are hundreds or dozens or or a couple or maybe a few thousand people so the, the city of St John's was a you know a rummy sailor town throughout history and I'm delighted to tell you it remains so <laughs> many times <laughs> so yeah pubs in St John's would be very very common and we you know it's one of those things that are that I just kind of took for granted growing up here and close to here, that everywhere in the world would have great pubs with great singers yeah. and great yeah. music in it. And I was you know, shocked <laughs> to, to go across most of North America, going like going into a pub that has a menu. What? I'm like, what? What? <laughs> Food in a pub? <laughs> it's like you know, come here to sing and 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 like and, but the rest of Newfoundland, the small towns, I mean, they wouldn't really have a lot of those. Wouldn't have a population big enough to support what you and I would know as like a British or an Irish style pub. Rather, the the communal music that would be going on in those places would happen like at the dance halls when that might take the form of the the fire hall or the or the legion.
0: So you come into a little village. If yeah. something's happening, it'd be posted. You could ask at the yep. at your B and B or whatever. yeah We're exploring Canada's easternmost province of Newfoundland and Labrador through the eyes and stories of a favorite son, Alan Doyle. He's joining us now on Travel with Rick Steves from the CBC Studios in St. John's. Alan's latest album is A Week at the Warehouse, and he's written two books about growing up in a Newfoundland fishing town. One book's called Where I Belong, and the other is A Newfoundlander in Canada, always going somewhere, always coming home. Alan's upcoming tour schedule includes dates in Rochester, New York City, Richmond, Virginia, Boston, and Halifax. You can find out about those venues and watch a video of his song, Beautiful to Me, on his website, alandoyle.ca. Hey, Alan, I would imagine living on an island off the east coast of a a proud country like Canada, uh, there'd be some tit-for-tat and a little bit of jokes going back and forth. Do Canadians have any jokes about Newfoundlanders can you share one of them and and if there's any truth to it?
3: I mean the history of it in Newfoundland of course is that in the 1960s and 70s there was like a series of like Newfoundland joke books often called Newfie joke books <laughs> that made its way around the country and the like and were you know were really just about you know Newfoundlanders being either lazy or you know drunk or or out of work or whatever and 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 as a kid they were they never rang for me because like I say, I lived in a twenty-four-hour town where people got up at three o'clock in the morning, and I was like, "Who are these jokes about? <laughs> like, where are these people? You know, like that they're supposed to be lazy." Like, They've got to who, come who, here who and cut out it? some
0: cod tongues and see what yeah. he is. Yeah, yeah. Alan, I love how you write about your first job out of high school when you were cutting uh, fish tongues, uh, cutting cod tongues, yeah, uh, on the wharf there. Talk about a little bit about the the fishing culture and it's even in the language. There's so many words that that are just unique to the fishing culture.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know that either, to be honest with you. I discovered that when I was writing the book, that that it was truly a unique (laughs) kind of dialect, you know. I had a very lucky childhood to grow up in a fishing town in Newfoundland that really still had the economy and culture. I mean, I grew up in the late 70s and early 80s, but I kind of had the same childhood as my father because Newfoundland in Petty Harbor, then, was still entrenched in the inshore small boat cod fishery. So that meant that my my little town had a couple of fish plants that for five or six months of the year basically ran 24 hours producing the codfish that came in in small 20-foot boats, you know, at a 1,000 pound or 800 pounds at a time. And, you know, the entire community would be involved in that, wow. in that fishery for basically 24 hours a day for six months of the year. So that included the 10-year-olds. So I was born in 1969. So in 1979, every summer day, I would get up and run down to the wharf, leave my house at 6 or 7.30 in the morning with a bucket, a sharp knife, and, <laughs> and go. And I would stand on the wharf. And our job, the young fellas' job in the community, was to help the fishermen when they landed their boats. And if you helped them clean the, the tables, clean their boats, unload the boats and stuff, then you could cut out the cod tongues, which you could then sell for, you know, not an insignificant amount of money as huh. a 10-year-old in cod 1970 1979. Cod tongues, were those considered the delicacy? or are they... Yeah, I mean, they still are kind of thing. It's really just the, the texture of it would be much akin to, like, a scallop, if you ever seen oh, like a okay. Canadian scallop yeah. kind of thing. But it's really just the under jaw of a codfish. And, mm-hmm. But they're fry and they're fantastic. And they're we used to sell them in to, to local restaurants from St. John's or from, you know, to Taurus or to whatever. And The thing I come up with in both books, really, is that I had no idea that such a specific skill set, such Mm -hmm. a specific tiny little thing would teach me lessons as a young kid that I could take with me almost for the rest of my life and be tremendously beneficial, you know? What's an example? Most people talk about learning lessons the hard way, and I would say, well, I learned mine the easy way. I didn't even know I was learning them, right? And I'm like, for example... As a 10-year-old, I was participating in the economy of the town. Mm -hmm. I was part of it. It needed me and I needed it. Not to mention the simple rules of like, if I get up earlier and work harder, I will do better. If I work harder with a team and we organize and do this together, we all do better. If Mm -hmm. I'm fair and honest with people in selling and buying and cutting and teamwork, everybody benefits. Who knew, you know, that that would serve me well as a musician traveling Isn't through they? Germany yeah. you know but, yeah. it's like, it's but like of course the, it does it's like that book Everything
0: I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten Everything I le- Needed to Know I Learned on the Wharf cutting out yeah. cod tongues
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry if I rambled on and I hope my shades ain't coming gone so I'm down on knee. come on come on come out with me hey!
5: Travel with Rick
0: Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac kaplan Woolner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can join us as a caller on the show to talk with Rick and his guests. Find out how at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.
1: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey.
5: And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.